1: to have our first meet the author of this year with Stan Grant who hardly needs any introduction and Stan's talking to my country um, is a powerful book which tells the story in his quotes of my country this is a story I'm now drawn to tell black Australia is a foreign place and I feel like a foreign correspondent in my own land We we certainly look forward to hearing his thoughts tonight and the questions you will ask the acknowledgement of country and the introduction to Stan will be given shortly by Vanessa Farrelly a 19-year-old Uranda woman from Alice Springs, who is studying resource and environmental management at the ANU. She was the recipient of the ACT Conservation Council Young Environmentalist of the Year for 2015, and is dedicated to protecting country and fighting for climate change justice. Some thanks tonight, particularly for Harper Collins, for facilitating tonight's event in Llewellyn Hall. In particular, Jackie Arthur, Jane Finnamore, and Alice Wood, who is with us tonight. As you will be aware, HarperCollins is filming tonight for promotional purposes. If you have any objections to being individually filmed, can you let the videographer, videographer know when they are being approached or when you are being approached? I'm also ca- grateful to Catherine Pierce, Penny Cox and Jane O'Dwyer in ANU Central Strategic Marketing for enabling this event, which is very popular as you can see, to move to Llewellyn Hall from the manning Clark Complex, and to the Canberra Times for their advertising support. Just a quick um, foreshadowing of our future events. On March the 1st, cult British author Jasper Ford will be speaking in his only Canberra appearance after the Perth Writers' Festival. Then on March 21, political journalist Nikki Savva will be speaking on her new book, The Road to Ruin, How Tony Abbott and Peter Credlin Destroyed Their Own Government. Nicky will be in conversation with another Can- well-known Canberra journalist, or Canberra-based journalist, Kerry Walsh. On the following night, George Megalogenis will be in conversation with Laura Tingle on George's new quarterly essay, Act: Australia Between Recession and Renewal. Both of those events went up today on the web and are bookable now. On April 8, one of Australia's most loved cultural figures, Ken Doan, will be speaking on his autobiography at an eat, drink and be artistic dinner at University House. On April 12th, Professor Henry Reynolds will be speaking on his new book, Unnecessary Wars. And then on a- April 19th, ABC journalist Sarah Ferguson will be see- speaking on The Killing Season, Uncut. Again, if you want to be aware of these events, please register with ANU events on their email list. To return to the night's event, please ensure that all mobile phones are switched off. And on the mobile phone front, somebody's left a mobile phone in the bathroom, and it can be retrieved at, at, from Penny or Catherine at the bookshop afterwards. After Stan Grant has spoken, there will be time for questions. Please raise your hand and wait for the microphone to come to you. At 725 Karen Middleton, a former colleague of Stan's at SBS and now Chief Political Correspondent for the Saturday Paper, will give the vote of thanks. Karen is a past President of the Federal Parliamentary Press Gallery and is a regular commentator in the media, particularly on ABC and ABC TV's Insiders. After the vote of thanks, book signings will again take place in the auditorium, but do please allow Stan to get to the book signing to sign the books rather than talking to Monrood. It now gives me great pleasure to call upon Vanessa Farrelly to give the Acknowledgement of Country and to welcome you generally. Thank you, Vanessa.
2: I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners on the land in which we stand, the people of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri tribes, especially our Elders who are here tonight, like Auntie Matilda House and her family, whose lands and rivers form the foundation that Canberra was built upon. I pay my respects to Elders both past and present and acknowledge their wisdom, leadership and courage. I acknowledge that as a young person I stand on the shoulders of giants, and I will never forget their continued struggle to, to sustain our languages, laws, and culture. I'm here today because of them. Let us never forget that since 1788, those who have fought on our behalf to ensure our rights and responsibilities as First Nations people were rights and responsibilities that would be preserved with dignity. I acknowledge, while I acknowledge those who have gone before us, I also acknowledge the young people. As students, we are at the cutting edge of society. We are not restrained by the past ways of doing things. Here at university, we get to be creative and bold and idealistic. We get to question the way things are and how they fail so many people. We get to envision a better world, a more just world. And we are in the perfect position to start demanding it and start building the solutions to take us there. Yes, as we move into the future, there'll be crises and challenges, like the global refugee crisis and like climate change. But at ANU, we don't have to shy away from these challenges. We get to use them as opportunities to rethink the way our world works and walk together to something better. May the spirits of our ancestors shine upon you and their wisdom, and your journey at ANU be one of learning and optimism. Thank you, and I'd I'd like you all to please join me in welcoming Stan Grant to the stage.
3: Thank you, thank you, thank you all for coming along. It's great to see so many people here tonight to be able to share in this conversation that we're all having in Australia right now. Before I begin, as a Wiradjuri man, I'd like to also send my respects to the Ngunnawal people and the elders who are here tonight and those past as well. Thank you again for allowing me to speak on your land. My book is called Talking to My Country. It could just as easily be called the things we hear because we've been talking to each other for two centuries and we still don't understand what the other side is saying. We have fought each other, we have loved and lived with each other, we've had children with each other, we've worked together and lived next to each other and still we meet across a chasm of our history. Still, we're divided by the original grievance of dispossession and the failure to reconcile ourselves with our history. And I don't think that this was ever more evident, or certainly I haven't seen in recent times, than what happened last year with Adam Goods. which really was the genesis of this book. It's what inspired me and motivated me to speak about these things that are so personal to us as Indigenous people, at that moment when Adam Goods was being booed by thousands of voices in football fields right across the country. I want to read just a little from the book here to really set the scene about why I wrote this and what we need to talk about in Australia. Then in the winter of 2015, it started. A jeer in a corner of a stadium grew to a crescendo of boos. Week after week, Adam Goods faced this maddening chorus. What drove it? Some said they simply did not like him. To others, he was a cheat, a player who staged for free kicks. But there was something more sinister here. There was a line between Adam Goods and the 13-year-old girl, and the ape taunt, and this vocal lynching. Adam Goods had moved beyond his station. He was a black fellow with a voice talking to a country that didn't like what it heard. Now the man who had scaled the heights of his game, who had won every accolade that it had to offer, retreated, broken. Australians could no longer look away from this mirror, from what this showed to us. This was no longer a story of politics. This was a story we read in the grandstands, and we could no longer ignore it. Some in the media tried to paint Adam as the villain. They twisted his words and accused him of humiliating the 13-year-old girl who vilified him. He did no such thing. Australians manned their barricades, some genuinely perplexed and saddened, others outraged that this country could even be accused of racism. He was accused of playing the victim dealing the race card. Adam was told to toughen up, get over it. And we hear this a lot. History is in the past. Bad things happen, but it is time to move on. But history is not past for us. At the height of the booing of Adam Goods, I decided to write an article for The Guardian newspaper, more for my own benefit than anyone else's. I didn't really anticipate that Australians were going to engage with this, that they wanted to hear this. Adam had spoken about this, and he was being vilified for it. Other voices had been heard across the two centuries of our history who had tried to speak to this divide in our nation, and they too had paid a price for it. We were vulnerable. When we speak in the public square, we invite derision. We are often outcast for it. We pay a terrible price. To even write about it was exposing myself. I wrote at the time that I hesitated to even speak of these things. But I wrote I could not speak to what lay in the head or the hearts of people who booed Adam Goods. I couldn't imagine what drove them but I could say what we heard and it was something very familiar to us. It was a howl of humiliation and it echoed across the two centuries of dispossession the subsequent injustice and suffering that sits at the heart of the tragedy of so many Indigenous lives in Australia today. I spoke of how we were ostracised and estranged in our own land, the land of our ancestors. I spoke of what it was like to live on the margins of Australia, wondering whether we would ever find a place. I sent the article not imagining that people would read it, and if they did read it, I imagined that they would react how I had seen people react before, which is to pour scorn on the person who dares to speak their own truth. And what surprised me was that people embraced it. Yes, there were those who wanted to attack me. There were those who accused me of playing the same race card that Adam had played, of crying victim but they were in the minority. The great chorus of voices I heard were saying, yes, we want to know. We need to know about this. We need to grapple with this. We can't allow this to continue in our country. Even if they booed Adam Goods, people were asking themselves, why did I do it? And why was I not aware of what other people were hearing? The things we hear as much as the words that we speak. After writing the article, which was shared over 100,000 times in one day from the Guardian website, I was approached to write this book and to talk about what it is like as an Indigenous man to navigate our history. How do we live with the weight of this history? How do we heal the very, very deep wound that exists in so many Indigenous people? And I wrote, I was born into what anthropologist W.E.H. Stanner called the great Australian silence. It was the period of forgetting. The myths we created fed Australia's lie that no blood had stained the wattle. We were told a story of peace and bravery and the conquest of a continent. This was the inevitable push into the interior, a land opening up before the explorers. It was empty, tamed, and claimed. These were the myths of my childhood, the myths of my education. In this telling, Australia was discovered by Captain James Cook. The endeavour was a ship of destiny that led to the first fleet. I was told Lawson, Blacksland and Wentworth were the first people to cross the Blue Mountains. But there were people standing on the shore as Cook weighed anchor, smoke from campfires, trailed the white men who trekked over the great mountains west of Sydney. Black people watched these people who appeared like ghosts and brought death. But that story wasn't told in my classroom. The lesson I learned was that we didn't matter. In fact, we didn't even exist. I was young when I began to question all of this. Even through the eyes of a boy, the glory of Australia did not match with the reality of our lives. Something was rotten here. Each morning at school, I would stand in line to recite the pledge. I honour my God, I serve my Queen, I salute the flag. And then in the evening, I would return home to where this flag had deposited us. Home was wherever we could find it. It was a home on the margins, outside of town, outside looking in. This is the reality of my life. This was the life that I was born into in 1963, the son of a Wiradjuri man from a family whose roots ran deep in Wiradjuri land, a family who were there on the plains of Bathurst, a family who fought in the wars of Bathurst, the wars that I was not told about in school, but wars that were reported at the time as surely as we report the wars of Afghanistan, Iraq and Syria today. Read the Sydney Gazette of the 1820s and you'll read the descriptions of the exterminating war. That was the phrase that was used. The battle that was fought between Wiradjuri people, the soldiers and settlers that raged for years. How my people had formed guerrilla raiding parties that killed settlers, that burned huts to the ground, that raced off and speared the livestock and how the whites formed their own vigilante groups and hunted us down until martial law was declared my people could be shot with impunity. This was a battle, it was a real battle, led by a man named Windradine, a man I had never learned about. In school, I could recite the great battles of the American West. I knew about the Battle of Little Bighorn, I knew about Custer and the Sioux and Crazy Horse and Sitting Bull, but I knew nothing of Windradine, nothing was spoken to us of this history. But he was a man who raised his people to resist. And When they could fight no more he led the huddled remnants of the Wiradjuri across the mountains into Parramatta to meet Governor Brisbane and he wore a straw hat with the word peace inscribed in the brim and he negotiated a settlement with Governor Brisbane. And blankets were handed out. And in those blankets, in the official record of those blankets being handed out, our name appears. There are the grants. And our name is then read in the mission records and the reports of the protector of Aborigines. It is read in the records of those who were ordered to be removed from their families. It is read in the records of the prisons. It is there in the death certificates of people who died before they'd even reached the age of 50. And it began there at a time of war and theft. The story we were never told, the great forgetting of our history. As I'd finished the book, I was asked to speak at a debate. And the debate posed the question was racism destroying the Australian dream. And I spoke at that debate to make this point that racism lay at the heart of the Australian dream. It was there in the belief that we did not exist. It was there in the doctrine of terra nullius that said this land was not only empty, but the people who were here had no legal claim to this land. It was there in the belief, and it was written at the time, that we were not human, if we were, we occupied civilization's lowest rung on the ladder. This was how we were seen, the fly-blown, prehistoric, primitive savages, with no respect for the 60,000 years of tradition and law and politics and art and music and humor and everything else that it takes to make a civilization. None of that mattered. And the idea that all men are equal was alive in the world. It was there in the Declaration of Independence in the United States, a country still struggling with its own history of slavery, a country that would ultimately fight a civil war and tear itself apart to remake itself. Jefferson had penned the Immortal Declaration. People knew of the value of a human life but that didn't extend to us and from that belief from fixing us in that way in the Australian imagination it led to successive waves of policies that told us where we could live and who we could marry and whether we could keep our children. The belief that we were not human that we were subhuman, and you can draw a line from that to the 13-year-old girl who was sta- sitting in the stands and called Adam Goods an ape. That's where it comes from, even if she's not aware of it. It is planted in the Australian psyche. That's how deep it runs that a 13-year-old girl could believe that of a man like Adam Goods. This lay at the heart of the Australian dream. Everything that came from that, came from that belief that we did not exist as human beings. That Windradyne, a man who could lead his people and negotiate a peace, was not a human being. So, of course, it is self-evident that racism destroys the Australian dream because it is inexplicably, it it is intricately linked to the establishment of the Australian dream. Our suffering was the scaffold on which Australian prosperity was built. We cannot argue with that fact. If people heard that part of the speech, the things we hear They would accuse me of racism, and people have, they've accused me of of denouncing the very society that has helped put me here today, that has given me the opportunities that I have enjoyed, the things we hear, but that's only half of what I said. The other half of what I said is that we are better than that. We are better than the worst of our history. that Australia does not create the extraordinary society that we live in today if this is a country that is born purely out of and framed by the subjugation of another people. There are other things that work here. There are other things that draw people from other lands to want to come to Australia and make a new life and find a new life. These are the things that have put us all here today. As a reporter, I've travelled the world and I have reported the worst of the world. I've been in Iraq and Afghanistan and Pakistan. I've stood in the blood of terrorist bombings. I've reported the rise of China and peered behind the secret veil of North Korea. I've seen the worst of the world and this is not it. Australia is a remarkable place and I said that and I mean that that the people who stood with us in our fight for recognition and citizenship and freedom, the people who who joined in the freedom rides of the sixties and who voted overwhelmingly the single greatest vote in any referendum held in Australia to confer on us our full citizenship rights, the men who served with my grandfather in Tobruk as he signed up to fight a war for this country even though he was not recognised as a citizen, these men who stood with him, white Australian men, the people who marched for reconciliation, the people who wept with us at the apology that Kevin Rudd delivered, the people who have loved us, the white grandmothers of Aboriginal children, the white husbands and fathers of Aboriginal people, they tell us that we're better than this. As I said in the speech, a great country, a demonstrably great country that Australia is, can surely stand the measurement of that greatness. These are the things I said. When we speak to this country, it is no point speaking to one part of this country, one part of this racial divide. We need to speak to the things that connect us Not the things that divide us, but we don't hear that. And this is nothing new. My people have been saying this forever. Windradine said it when he sat with Governor Brisbane. My grandfather said it when he signed up to fight for this country. William Cooper and Jack Patton and Bill Ferguson said it in the day of mourning when they stood up and said, we want to be citizens Charles Perkins said this when he took people on that freedom ride and he held a mirror up to Australia and he said, is this who you really want to be? Do you want to deny us the full rights that you enjoy? We have been saying this, we have been saying you are a great country. We have been saying let us in, let us share in this country. But so rarely has that been heard. And we've reached that moment in 2015 when people could boo Adam Goods without even beginning to realise what it is that we would hear when we heard those boos. The things we hear are as important as the things we say. This is why I've written the book. This is the moment that we're seizing. And that speech that I gave in the debate was ultimately posted online and released on the eve of Australia Day. Within a matter of days, over one million people watched it on the Sydney Ethics Centre website. Hundreds of thousands of people watched it online. It travelled around the world. I was interviewed on CNN, Al Jazeera, the BBC. The world wanted to ask me who we were as a country, wanted to ask me what did it feel like to be an Indigenous person in Australia and I could have resorted to anger because I feel anger, we all feel anger. I could have resorted to guilt and blame and shame but that is so all too easy. That doesn't speak to the things that can unite us in this country. I spoke of the greatness of Australia and I spoke of the responsibilities of greatness. That how a country that can achieve all that it has been able to achieve and a people who have made it all that it is can allow the First Peoples to still die 10 years younger than the rest of the population. It can allow people who are not three percent of the population to constitute more than 25 percent of the total prison population. It can allow Indigenous men between the ages of 25 and 30 to commit suicide at four times the rate of the rest of the population that can allow depression to exist amongst Indigenous people at three times the rate of the rest of the population that can allow Indigenous people to go blind at six times the rate of the rest of the population. How can this be? How can we measure the greatness of this country by the suffering of the original people and how can we allow that to continue? I don't believe that anyone here tonight wants it to continue. I don't believe the politicians on the hill here tonight want that to continue. I don't believe that the vast numbers of Australians who have walked with us, who have stood with us, who live with us and love us, that they want that to continue. But it will continue if we don't find a way to speak to each other and hear what the other person is saying. And the same applies to my people as it does to you. My people who are wounded, who are looking to heal, my people who are angry, who want to reject Australia, that we have to put aside that anger too and we have to find a way. We have to. We've seen what our history has done to us. We've seen where it has delivered us and in the full acknowledgement of our place in Australia and the full acknowledgement of the greatness of Australia, that we can find a way to bring those things together, to ask Australians to reflect on all that they've achieved and you reflect on all you've achieved to look at who has suffered for all of that to remember what it would be like to fight for your land as my ancestors did in, B- in Bathurst, to imagine what it would be like to lead your people across a mountain and ask for peace, for what it would be like to see your people huddled in missions, to what it would be like to lose your family, to bury your people before their time. It is not hard, surely, to understand that suffering when you hear what the other person is saying. There are people who want to pass our words, carve us up and divide us. There are people who want to see what I'm saying here tonight, to pick out the bits that they most appeal to them and twist those words and try to use those words to keep us apart. Those people are not patriots. They are not people who believe in this country. They are not worthy of the greatness of this country. The people on either side who want to tear apart this country, they are not worthy of the greatness of this country. But the people who sit here tonight and the vast majority of people who have responded to what I have said, who have written in praise and support of the stand that people like me and others before me have taken, that those people who want to see the greatness of this country fulfilled, that their voices will be heard over the voices of those who want to separate us. My book is called Talking to My Country. What is more important is how you hear the words of this book. Thank you.
0: We hope you enjoyed this talk. Did it inspire or even provoke you? Let us know via Twitter at ANU underscore events. If you're interested in learning more about the research and ideas that come out of ANU, then why not consider a free subscription to ANU Reporter magazine. ANU Reporter tells the stories of the greatest minds in Australia, brightest students and finest alumni. Visit news.anu.edu.au forward slash publications and click on the ANU Reporter magazine link to find out more.